Good morning. I am, in fact, live from our sanctuary. In fact, each week in this sermon series on the Ten Commandments, we will have the sermon done from a different location somewhere on this property because I think these different locations can help underscore something fundamental about the commandment that we're looking at for that morning. Today, again, we're in the sanctuary. I'm standing in the chancel area where we sometimes have weddings. Some of you have been married right here. This is the black binder I use for weddings. As you will see, this all has very much to do with our first commandment and I think much to do with our call as Christians in this nation at this time. First, though, some background information on the reading you already heard by Amy Pratt from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapters 19 and 20 actually are a wedding, complete with vows. In chapter 19, we hear God address God's people who've just been taken out of slavery or now are gathered at the base of Mount Sinai. God calls them my treasured possession. That is wedding language. That is Uh, language a groom would use for his bride in that time. We also read in chapter 19 that the people, they do a ritual cleansing at the base of Mount Sinai, something a bride and groom would do before a wedding. We read a thick cloud covers over Mount Sinai, like a hoopah, a wedding canopy. Because, of course, what is happening is, in fact, a wedding between God and the people. If you read through the rest of Scripture, you see time and again, Israel is understood to be God's bride, God's beloved. God and the people are married. This is the wedding. We say, where are the vows? Where are those sacred promises and commitments for better, for worse? Well, those those are the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as it's literally translated. And the first of those words, the first vow you heard, you shall have no other gods before me, or also equally translated, beside me, next to me, above me. This is a marriage. And in short, it won't work if there are other lovers. Jesus declares the same thing in the positive on a number of occasions, including in our second reading today from Matthew chapter 22, verses 36 to 40. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and prophets hang on these two commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the way the church asks about this vow in the contemporary context, is by way of a question. At baptism, or if we transfer to another church, we've already been baptized, do you turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as your Lord and Savior? Trusting in his grace and mercy, I do. We, alongside all of God's people, we affirm our vow that we are in this covenant relationship with God. And it's right and it's good the way we we do it, but I think it's also right and good never to lose sight of the way that the first commandment is worded here in Exodus Because as short as it is, you shall have no other gods before me, the way it's worded makes it clear that there are other gods who will tempt and who will threaten this covenant. There are other gods who, though they are entirely empty, promise, seem to promise in certain seasons, something that will be so good, so much better 
and so tempt the breaking of the vow. Famously, Jesus, right, right after his baptism, right after this glorious moment of basking in God's grace in Matthew chapter 3, right after that, do you remember what happens? He's led out into the wilderness where he is tested for 40 days by the devil. The devil tempts Jesus to turn stones into bread, to take all the kingdoms of the world for himself, which is to say, right off the bat, Jesus is tempted with other lovers. In particular, Jesus is tempted with the gods of power. Take these stones and do whatever you feel you want to do for you. Take these kingdoms and, 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 and lead all of them according to your vision, however you want to do it. Jesus for president. He refused. Right at the outset of his ministry, Jesus refuses to tie his kingdom power and influence to any of the powers of his day. Now true, his kingdom may and does at time overlap with parts of the powers and nations and kingdoms of this world. Sometimes his kingdom is even known in and through in some partial way, the nations and kingdoms of this world. But his kingdom is, is always at a fundamental level different and never readily and totally aligned with any one power, platform, or party. And we know this if, if by no other reason than because ultimately Jesus' way of redeeming the world is not by overcoming it, by harnessing the strongest worldly powers available to him, but by becoming a servant, a servant even unto death on behalf of all people. He goes the way of love. He tells the devil, no. Some of you follow fellow Texan Beth Moore. Maybe you use her devotional material, her Bible study material. It's um, a lot of good stuff for a long time. And uh, she saw the amount of Jesus signage and T-shirts and crosses meshed in and on and among the political movement and violence storming the Capitol on Wednesday. And, and she, she lamented, they may be acting in the name of, of some other Jesus, but it, that's not the Jesus of the Gospels. That's not the Jesus who refused to tie his name in ministry to political platforms and power. That's not the Jesus who told Peter to put away the sword. As Presbyterians, we have a book of confessions. A book where we have adopted certain statements of, of faith that help us articulate what we are about and what we are called to do. And I, I find this particular book so important uh, to dig up in those seasons of life where we face challenges where we really don't know what the words are or what the actions should be. Because this is such a repository of wisdom, of saints from the past who have gone through all kinds of hugely significant challenges and have worked and prayed to offer wise and courageous words about what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. One of those in that book of confessions is the Barmond Declaration, written in Germany, 1933. Listen to this portion. With both its faith and its obedience, with both its message and its order, the church has to testify in the midst of a sinful world that it belongs to Jesus alone and lives by his comfort and under his direction alone. 
alone. Our vow is to Jesus. First, our Jesus above all other vows. However good, however important, however noble any other vow is, that one first. And and, and then the barman goes on to spell out uh, some significant implications of that vow. We reject, then, the false doctrine that the church could have permission to hand over the form of its message and of its order to whatever it might wish or to the vicissitudes of the prevailing ideological and political convictions of the day. The church cannot and will not hand over all that it is to any politician or platform or prevailing movement left, right, or otherwise. It's not that the church seeks to dishonor governing authorities. No, there there are certainly plenty of scriptures we know that call us to do and honor those in power, to pray for them. It is just that we have long recognized, especially since the Reformation, the inherent danger whenever the church and political powers and platforms become too indistinguishable. When the way of this platform, the way of this person, is the way of Jesus. When the way of Jesus is the way of this platform, this person. Reinhold Niebuhr, the famous American theologian of the early, mid-20th century, he named the danger of this enmeshment saying that in every generation, every generation, there is, quote, a strong tendency to claim God as an ally for our partisan value and ends. And that is the source of all religious fanaticism. That is the form of all forms of intolerance, violence, and lies enacted in the name of a righteous or even religious cause. You shall have no other gods before me, beside me, next to me, above me. On this day where we are still despairing and angered and hurting and unsure of what's next. In this day of heightened political identity where where there are even calls for civil wars to occur, to happen right along those lines. In an age where the temptation to to stick with your partisan side unquestioningly, no matter what. How does the church untangle itself? How does the church, on one hand, remain involved in the ordering of of society? In a good and just and peaceful way. I mean, after all, our own confession of 1967 in that book. Exhorts, the church is called to command to the nations as practical policies, the search for cooperation and peace. We have a voice unto truth and goodness. How do we, how do we remain involved in all the critical matters that bear upon each and every one of us and at the same time? How does the church refrain from giving Jesus over to any one party or platform or movement, that we might always be free to speak truth to power. We might always be free to foremost stand with the poor and the vulnerable. We might always be free to speak and live on behalf of the kingdom of God, which calls into question every other kingdom and every other platform at some level in some way. In short, how do we live as a people who are definitely in the world 
but not of the world. Recognizing that our singular and our first allegiance is to Jesus, is to love himself, is to the singular one who has died and risen for us and who alone is worthy. That is a question every generation of the church has faced. And let's admit at the outset, that is difficult, trying, ongoing, never-ceasing work. But... I saw a photo this past week that gave me an image of something of what it looks like to be the church that is in this world but not of this world. It was a photo. It was a photo of a Christian on his knees in the rotunda of the Capitol very early on Thursday morning. He had a bag in his hand and he was cleaning up water bottles and clothing items and various pieces of trash left by those who had stormed the Capitol. And the more I thought about this particular photo, the more I felt the posture captures two things directly related to what God is calling the church to be about in this time. The first is this. We remain in the rotunda of competing and complex issues that matter with continual humility and confession on our knees. As much as Wednesday's events may have stirred any number of emotions within us and some some finger-pointing, that doesn't represent me. That's just like them. That's all of us have a part in letting other gods be put ahead of Jesus. Often, in these recent years, it has been the gods of our party, our platform, our preferred presidency. And if Wednesday's events did not give us enough of a glimpse into what that can look like, I want to invite a brief thought experiment. I didn't tell you the political affiliation of this man in the rotunda photo. Maybe you already know. Maybe maybe you saw the photo. But if you didn't, you haven't seen it, you haven't looked it up, and you went to look it up, would one of two things happen when you looked it up? Would any of us, seeing that this man is from our preferred political party, gain kind of a smug satisfaction. I I knew, I knew it would be this side and these people that are the Jesus people. Or would, would, if we saw he's of the other preferred party than what we prefer or align with, would we roll our eyes quickly and, and wonder kind of what forms of hypocrisy lie in this man's political closet. I suggest the degree to which we would have either of those responses, either a smug, prideful, I knew it, satisfaction, or a disdainful, eye-rolling, I bet you he is not as good as you think he is. The degree to which we have either one of those responses is the degree to which we are letting a partisan God or gods rise alongside or above Jesus. Because in both instances, we are blind to the fact that foremost, what we have in this moment is a child of God serving amid the mess. 
In each time and place, there are particular problems and crises through which God calls the church to act, declares the Confession of 1967 in our Book of Confessions. The church in these times, guided by the Spirit, humbled by its complicity, seeks to discern the will of God and learn how to obey in these concrete situations. Notice the wisdom of our forebearers. Every face, every generation faces challenges and crises. And we never lead from a place of righteousness, always from a place of confession. We are complicit. We remain in the rotunda, on our knees. The other thing that the photo made me mindful of is this. We are to be about cleaning up the mess. Certainly humility and confession are are a part of that, but when I think of cleaning up the mess, especially in the context of wedding vows and marriage, I am drawn to think of the couples who have come to me from time to time to renew their vows. Sometimes couples want to renew their vows on a significant anniversary, but the other main time I find that couples want to renew their vows is when they're working through or have been working through a really tough spot. Now, they see hope, that they're moving in a good direction, but they have been through one of those seasons where so much of who they were or who they thought they were has been stripped away. They have been living through some measure of the carnage and pain that happens when other things crowd out those vows or those vows are just lost. They come in these seasons where, where they really have been chastened, they have been humbled, and yet paradoxically, They are finding a new vitality. And so it's precisely then that they want to renew their vows as something of a form, as part of this deep clean they're doing. They want to name the truths of their vows with fresh conviction and clarity, having seen how bad it does get when the vows are put aside or lost, and yet having a sense for the joy to be known when the vows are leaned into afresh. Perhaps it is that we are in such a season today. Amid our brokenness, our anger, our pain, our confusion, perhaps there is a whisper rising from within the soul of the church, longing to go back to where it started and renew the vows. Jesus, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, As long as you give breath, we will love you with all of our heart, our mind, our body, and our soul above every other allegiance and without regard to economics or station or race or affiliation or citizenship. We will love our neighbors, all of them as we love ourselves. And if for a moment we worry about how our beloved looks back upon us as we are renewing our vows, take heart. The scene has already unfolded in Scripture. The bride, who is God's people, 
cheated on God time and again with all kinds of gods. And in the book of Hosea, we read God is, is furious with lament and sadness and, and, and grief. And then ultimately, God's word to the bride is given to us in Hosea chapter 2 amidst all the failings and cheating and everything else. Therefore, I will now allure her. I will draw her into the wilderness and I will speak tenderly to her. May we be a people who remain in the rotunda, on our knees, ever renewing our vows, confident that in every season, despite all of it, God takes us, takes all of us back. God is faithful. Amen.